In this second podcast, following on from episode 13, I'll continue my conversation with Richard Hayes, the son of Aston Martin chairman, Walter Hayes. We hear how a Cortina came to be driven down a toboggan run by Jim Clark and Henry Taylor, Walter and Collins' negotiations to persuade Graham Hill to join Team Lotus in 1967, and how later they proposed to encourage Hill to retire, and so much more. I hope you enjoy it. This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Gary Taylor. The work initially began, you know, on, on, on the sort of road car side of things, but um, Chapman was looking for a Formula One engine, and he had worked with Ford in the past where he'd run a Ford engine at Indianapolis, um, and he had approached Ford in the States and said, let's go Formula One with a Ford engine. But Ford in America was not interested in Formula One. No. And, and so, so when um, Colin discussed this with Walter, then Walter said, well, look, let me try. Let, let's take a different approach to this. And there, there was a, a, a Ford of Britain at the time was headed by an American engineer called Harley Cop. And um, he, so Walter went to him and said, look, let's, let's go for it. And Hardikop was very supportive. And, um, and so what happened was that, you know, Walter put together a proposal and it was approved and, and off they went. Um, and after that, um, you know, the, the, the relationship developed with Lotus and over Formula One and um, the, there were issues because um, Walter really wanted to make Lotus as good as he could, as did Colin. And it wasn't just a matter of bringing a good engine. It was a matter of the drivers. But what happened was um, that they decided that um, they would bring... Jim Clark was the Lotus driver. They would bring in Graham Hill. And Ford, with uh, father, had agreed that Ford would pay retainers to both Jim Clark and Graham Hill, so they were paid by both Lotus and Ford. And at the time, Jim Clark was receiving £5,000 from Ford. So um, this is a letter of December 1966 from Lotus Cars, Delamere Road, Chesant, Hertfordshire. And in it, it says, um, Colin Chapman writes, Dear Walter, I was very pleased to have the opportunity of discussing various aspects of our association with you and to have your agreement on the financial sums involved. Briefly, I will restate these as follows. And then he goes through a few items. One of them is that, that Ford will offer um, £10,000 as a contribution towards the cost of Graham Hill's agreement to join Lotus from BRM, and that to balance out the situation... Um, the £5,000 that Ford was already paying for Jim Clark would be added. Um, you know, another £5,000 would be added. So Hill and Clark would have the same amount. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the money would be paid to Team Lotus and handed over in their entirety to the drivers concerned. Um, so that's a rather nice uh, letter. There's a couple of other letters that... Um, Talk about the advice that Father was... We talked about that he was yes. forgiving. Um, there's a very sad letter from the 18th of April, 1968, um, just 
um, 11 days after the death of Jim Clark. And the letterhead <coughs> of the company was changed overnight to black. It, it was green beforehand, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. There you can see. Yes, yes. It's black. And in it, um, uh, Colin continues to seek father's advice and... Um, he writes, as a result of the investigation into Jimmy's accident, I've compiled the attached report. I would be very pleased if you would let me know if there's any part of this that you would like to comment on or which you would like to see rephrased. Um, so that's, you know, very, very important issues. Mm. And everyone was in it together. And what was interesting was they had such a good relationship that um, Lotus had an exclusive deal for the Cosworth DFE engine. The DFE being the double four-valve engine. Yes, the the double four-valve. That was the Formula 1 engine. The four-valve was the Formula 2. Anyway, Walter and Colin agreed that exclusive deal with Lotus. But the engine clearly was very, very good. And and this was established after just, you know, one or two races Mm. in 1967. And although there was an, an agreement that it would be exclusively provided, supplied to Lotus... Uh, Walter was concerned that that Ford would be accused of sporting Formula One if they started winning everything. <laughs> As if that happens. <laughs> yes. And can you imagine? That today. So, so he said to Colin, we're going to have to um, change our agreement and you have to allow me to sell engines or supply engines to other teams. And the, Colin said yes which is absolutely remarkable. It shows what a, a racer he was, what a sportsman. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm amazed by that. So you thought that maybe... Well, perhaps there was some resistance, first of all, but then saw the, the opportunity, as they say, a racer, I'd like to race against other people using the same engine. Well, I think the point was that, that Ford had done so much for Lotus. You know, they provided the engine sponsorship, they were maintaining the engines, they were helping pay the drivers. Um... I think Colin felt that Ford had a right to make, make certain demands and um, confident mm. enough in his abilities mm. to think we'll take on anybody and beat them even <laughs> with the same engine. There are a couple of other... Then there's another letter from 1972 um, where um, Walter had continued to be in touch and help Lotus. And this letter from Chapman says, um, thank you, Walter, very much for your introduction to the Texaco contract, which I've now satisfactorily concluded. I really do look for a good year in racing this year, and the finance arising from your introduction will certainly help towards this. This is a, a letter from three years later, in 1975, September, um, from, from Colin to Walter, saying... Dear Walter, you really are one of the best friends a man could wish for. Oh, lovely. Thank you most sincerely for all the help you are giving my people over the Esprit launch. I'm sorry I'm so difficult. All the best, Colin. (laughs) Um, But Colin was a very good man with a very good soul. And um, there's a letter here. That's interesting because the the impression you get here, he he was ruthless. But, the, but the, we're not seeing that. Well, I think he was, that. you know, he was very, um, you know, driven by his ideas and very mm. focused. Um, so was Enzo Ferrari. But I, yes. but, but I, I think 
you know, he was famous, but he seems to have been a much sterner and unforgiving character. Mm. And Ferrari is famously regarded as never really having cared for his drivers. But what's very interesting in this letter is, um, shows Colin Chapman was completely different because on the 23rd of October, 69, he wrote um, a letter about, um, you know, that they discussed various plans and that Ford would continue their official backing of Team Lotus in Formula One. Um, And the last paragraph says, we also discussed the various aspects of Graham Hill and his retirement. We both felt it would be very advantageous to encourage him to do this in the sum of £10,000 each. Both of us would be contributing towards this end, though we were not sure exactly how this would be done and what the details of the arrangement would be. And the point was that, um, you know, Graham Hill was a hero mm. and a wonderful man. Um, he, uh, Walter and Colin were very close to him and they were concerned. This was a very dangerous time. Yes, it was. In yes. Formula One. Um, drivers were, were dying, as, as we know. And the concern was that having been two times world champion, having won you know, the famous three, the Le Mans, Indianapolis, and Monaco, the concern was that Graham had nothing left to prove, um, that he was starting to be past his best, and really that the, the, the risk wasn't worth it. And therefore... Um, they should encourage him to retire, which they did. Um, but, of course, Graham was an out-and-out racer, mm. so I don't think he, you know, he didn't retire then. There is a, there is a, a funny story that um, in um, ni- 1970, um, during my very first term at boarding school, there was a BBC documentary about Graham and Hill and his plans for the forthcoming season. And my father wrote to me and said, there's, a, there's this program on BBC at nine o'clock next week, um, and it's all about Graham Hill, and he comes to see me in my office and we have a chat. And, and, and my father wrote and said, we'll see if you can watch it. So I went to see my housemaster, and I said, you know, sir, can I have permission to stay up late after lights out and watch this, this program nine o'clock because my father's in it so I told him about the program and the housemaster said well Hayes I can't let you be the only boy to stay up late the whole dormitory will stay up late fair enough so, so he walked into the dormitory with me and there were 12 other boys well I guess that wasn't 13 it must have been 11 other boys and um, we didn't really know each other it was the first time and everyone was a bit formal and we called each other by our surnames and um, the housemaster said you're all going to watch this documentary, 45 minutes. Um, it's about Graham Hill, and you're watching it because Hayes' father knows Graham Hill. So everyone was really impressed. Yes. And I thought, wow, you know, I was, I was brimming with pride, and it felt very good. So we went into the TV room, and we sat there, and, um, and there is Graham Hill, and there's footage of him winning races and him and his factory, and then he's, he's getting out of a car at Ford headquarters in Essex, in Brentwood, and he said, and now I'm going to talk to Walter Hayes, a Ford who's been instrumental in my career and such a great help, and we're going to talk about next season. So then you see Graham walking into Walter's office, and he sits down, 
And Graham says, well, Walter, very nice to see you again. And, um, you know, it's time to talk about me and my racing and make a plan. So what is the plan, Walter? And my father looked at Graham and said, the plan, Graham, is you are retiring. (laughs) And um, Graham has this kind of half smile on his face, not a comfortable one and certainly not the answer he was expecting. And um, the whole dormitory turned around and looked at me, appalled. Uh, You know, Hayes' father is trying to finish Graham Hill's career. And it didn't, it was not a good PR move for me. (laughs) And it it, um, definitely slowed down the creation of friendships in my first time. Oh, dear. So, um, anyway, so those are some of the Chapman letters. Um, Then I have one here from Jackie Stewart. Sorry, this is a podcast, you can't see it. I can see it, though. Yep. But it's, 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 it's lovely to see these period letters. Well, it's it? a period it's, letter. It, it's dated 28th of November 1966. The heading is Jackie Stewart, brackets Dumbuck Limited, Dumbuck Garage, Milton, Dumbarton. Um, the directors of this garage are J.Y. Stewart, H.M. Stewart, J.G. Hunter, brackets managing, J.D. Lyon. Um, and the two brands printed at the bottom are Austin and Jaguar. And the letter is um, to Walter from Jackie. Firstly, he's thanking very much for the new Zodiac car that he's received as a loan uh, in placing his original Zodiac, which uh, Jackie finds wonderful and much superior. Um, The automatic gearbox is first class, and the general finish of the car is very high. Jackie says he uses it all the time. And the significance of that is that in, in um, 1964, Jackie was the British Formula 3 champion, and he was going to... He was in Scotland. He wanted to go to the London Motor Show, which I think was at Olympia, mm. <clears throat> in about October, because that's where all the sport people were, the drivers, the teams, the, the companies. And... And Jackie was a young driver, Formula 3 champion. He wanted to go down and create new opportunities. And he had won uh, for Tyrrell with a Cooper BMC. And he called BMC and said, would they lend him a Mini to drive down to London? And BMC said, no, you can take the train. So Jackie took the train. He walked into Olympia. There was the Ford stand with the big shiny Zodiac and my father standing next to it. And Jackie walked up, and they started speaking, and um, Jackie said he knew of my father but hadn't really met or spoken to him. And Walter said, well, I know who you are. And he said, how about this lovely Zodiac? It's got white wall tires. This is really hot stuff. How about I give you one of these, and I pay you 500 pounds, and you start racing for me. Oh, lovely. And so that's, that's where it all started. Um, although that year, um, Jackie twice raced uh, a Lotus Cortina. Anyway, so what's interesting in this letter is that two years later, um, Jackie is writing to apologize for not accepting Walter's um, offer of joining Team Lotus for 67. Um, 
And there was a big campaign to get Jackie into a Lotus. Um, it says here, Colin tried very hard. Henry Taylor, who was an ex-Formula 1 driver, then competitions manager at Ford, he tried very hard to persuade Jackie. Um, and Jackie was apologising, saying, well, I'm with BRM and I need to give them um, more time. So what that also tells us is that um, Jackie was Walter's and everybody's first choice before Graham Hill. Yes. And that um, because Jackie declined, then Graham got the drive. But it wasn't exactly a terrible compromise for anybody. Um, But it's very nice. Um, He says... As it's turned out, I'm sure you must be very happy to have both Graham and Jimmy in the same team. And I'd like to take this opportunity wishing you every success in the venture. Obviously, I'd be trying very hard to beat the boys, but I'm sure I'd be trying to beat them in any case, no matter what team they were in. But the amazing thing was, two years before, um, Jackie had actually raced a Formula One Lotus. And what had happened was, that there was a, um, a Ford promotional event in Cortina d'Ampezzo where Walter had collected all the drivers from around Europe who'd raced and won in Cortinas, and they had this event, special event. And during the co- and two significant things happened. The first was that um, Walter had said to Henry Taylor, who was an ex-Olympic toboggan guy, he said, you know, we've got all these journalists and I don't think we've quite got enough fun packed in. What else can we do? And, um, and then he said to Henry, I know what, how about driving a Cortina down the toboggan run? And Henry said, well, I'm not sure that's been done, but we could definitely give it a go. Um, there's a very good account of this in Graham Robson's book called uh, Cortina's Capris and Corsairs. Yes, yes. Um, so hang on, wait, the, uh... This is quite something. There's somebody suggested taking a Ford Cortina Mark I down a toboggan. Yes, yes. And so Henry Taylor and Jim Clark took it in turns to drive each other down the toboggan run, and it, it didn't go that well to begin with. No. <laughs> there were, uh, I think, at one time Jim Clark arrived at the bottom of the run on, on his roof, um, and... Um, Henry Taylor on another time got into a real tank slapper. And, of course, that means that you're thumping the wall on either side. But on the same weekend, and there's a picture I think you're going to upload. Yes, that'll be on the website. uh, Walter was a keen photographer, and he was on a ski lift, and he took a picture of Jim Clark throwing a snowball at him. Jim Clark pulled a muscle and wasn't able to race a few weeks later at the Rand Grand Prix in South Africa, which was a non-championship Formula One event. And so Walter called Jackie and said, um, well, you're going to be a, a Team Lotus driver. Mm. And This is because uh, Jim... Uh, because Jim Clark wasn't uh, able to race. Wasn't able to, yeah, and, and Jackie said, well, Walter, I would love to do that, but I'm contracted to BRM. So there's not, I just can't do it. Mm. And Walter said, well, leave it to me. And he was quite well known for persuading people. So he called Tony Rudd, who was the BRM team manager, and he said, oh, Tony, you don't need Jackie for the Ram Grand Prix, do you? It's not, you know, it's just a a non-championship race. And, um, you know, just lend him to us for one race. (coughs) 
So Tony Rudd said, fine, very happy to do it. So actually, Jackie's first Formula One race was in a Lotus. Really? Um, after that, he never raced yeah. again in the Lotus Formula One car. Um, it was a two-part race. He had a problem at the start of the first race, but he won the second one. And um, you have a photograph which was taken many years later that is amusing because it's a, it's a Cosworth celebration anniversary at Silverstone. And it's a picture of Walter standing or crouching next to the Lotus from that time and uh, with the Ford DFE engine and Jackie in the car. It's a, it's a, a lovely thing. So... Um, then now I have a letter from Graham Hill. Um, it, is, it is so magical that, as I said earlier, it's a shame that you can't see these. These, yeah. these are period letters from, from just illustrious names. It is fantastic. And look at that letter from Graham. Yes. So this is from Mill Hill. Um, and um, it has, there's this, a logo in the letterhead. It's actually the BRDC logo in blue. And above it, there are five gold stars. And um, the letter is written on the 24th of October, 1969. And he thanks Walter for going to meet him. And um, it's full of nice things about the end of the year. And then he writes, there was a question I meant to ask you yesterday during your visit. At present, I'm trying to write a book about my life in motor racing and I'd like to know whether you would mind if I were to mention our little discussion at Watkins Glen in 1967 when Jimmy and I tossed a coin as to who would win the race. I understand perfectly if you would not like this to be mentioned, and naturally I would like your permission to use it if you have no objection. Well, this is a story that did appear in a book edited by Graham Gould. I'm just looking for... Um, it had actually already appeared in the book, um, Jim Clark, Portrait of a Great Driver. And the story was that at, at, at Watkins Glen, I think it was the last race of the season in 1967, and um, Walter was concerned, you know, with these two great drivers that, um, that they might take each other off. Mm. And Colin was too. So I think, according to Walter's account in the Jim Clark book, Collins said, well, we'll go to Walter's room in the motor inn, the Glen Motor Inn, and we'll toss a coin. And that's what they did. And um, the coin was tossed and Graham won. So that was the agreement. But anyway, what happened during the race was that Graham was leading, but he had some, I forget exactly what, but he had some kind of problem developing. And, and Jim Clark slowed to stay behind him. And then Colin and father thought, well, this isn't right because we're at risk of losing the race. And, we, you know, if we... So things will, will have to change. So they gave Jimmy the sign to pass Graham, and he did, and he won. They had, I think, a one-two. And um, what Walter told me was it was really a marvellous moment when Jimmy came into the pits, he got out of the car, and the very first thing he did was to go and look for Graham and tell him that he'd been instructed to pass him, that he hadn't done it of his own volition. Okay. They, you know, they were very good together. It was yes. very important. So that's 
comes to mind from that letter. Different era. Yeah. And then um, this, in some ways, is actually my, my favourite set of letters. Um, <clears throat> Can I just say, I'm looking at these letters now. Uh, is, uh, uh, sadly, you won't be able to see these on, on, on the website because confidentiality, if you like. But they are copyright, in... Copyright, yeah. Copyright, yes. Yeah. Um, they are in remarkable condition, these letters, aren't they? Yes. They, they don't seem to be folded or torn or anything. They are yes. beautifully preserved. Well, they were... Um, I, I was very close to my father, and we, we, you know, we, we had lots of interests in common, and I was... Or it grew up, you know, going to races and meeting these drivers. And in those days, it was a much smaller world. And if we went to the British Grand Prix, we'd go and sit in Jackie's motorhome before the race and discuss yeah. things. And then afterwards, you'd go and find out what happened and why. And, and, <clears throat> and Walter kept all sorts of extraordinary letters and files from all the different things he'd done and the people he'd been with. And for my um, 40th birthday, he gave me... Um, his archive and the archive this is any this is a part of it he didn't keep each and every letter no. um just various ones from various times um but these letters are from that archive along with some trophies and so of course it was extremely important to me yes. and I, i've kept them very carefully but they've never seen the light of day they've never been shared so the fact that, that you and the Trust have invited me to, to speak about Walter, um, I thought, well, this would be a chance to wow. touch motor racing history, come up with things that people might not have heard about or know. For example, that side to Colin Chapman that I've never heard about. No, no. no. Um, and to give an, you know, an insight into Walter. Well, it's, it's been a delight for you to share the, these documents. And uh, sorry to interrupt, you, but yeah. you said you found a very special and interesting letter there, which you got in front of you. No, th- th- this, this is, in a way, my, this is like a complete set. These are letters <laughs> from Emerson Fittipaldi. So he, in 1969, he was the Brazilian Formula V champion. Yeah. And um, he was heading, he wanted to be in Formula One. So he came to England to establish himself and to start in Formula Ford and work his way up, which he did. Um, remarkably, he was in Formula One within a year. So, so Walter contacted Emerson, um, who was living in a place called Bunwell, Norwich, and um, he, he, they, they met. And these are the letters, um, and there's a wonderful progression from... What, what do you think about my future to, my God, I can't believe what's happened. So this, the first letter is November 4th, 1970. Um, and it says, Dear Mr. Hayes, hereby I would like to express my sincere thanks for the precious collaboration you have given me so far. This is November 4th, 1970. Definitely it would not have been possible to achieve what I have this year without your personal help. Again, Thank you very much for all your cooperation. Sincerely yours, Amazon Fittipaldi. Okay? Um, he, one of the... This letter is October the 12th, a year later, 71. Um, and Emerson has moved from Bunwell, Norwich, to Pooley in Switzerland. Things have changed. And um, one of the things that um, 
you know, Emerson was contemplating driving for Lotus, but not entirely sure. And he sought Walter's advice. This letter says, Dear Mr. Hayes, I reconsidered your advice, and, as it may be of your knowledge, I renewed my contract with Lotus for another two years. And I hope that next year will be very successful for Ford and Lotus. Thank you once again very much for your kind help. Okay? So that's 71. So almost a, a year later, minus one day, October the 11th, 1972, we have an ecstatic letter. Dear Mr. Hayes, now that I won the world championship, you just cannot imagine how pleased and happy I am. Three exclamation marks. And I really would like to thank you very much for the continuous help you have given me. Firstly, providing me with a fantastic engine that made my car go really very fast this year. And secondly, for all the advice you've been giving me. I remember very well last year when you told me what decision I should take and you were just too right about it. I do hope to see you at the fourth stand of the British Motor Show to thank you personally for everything. Unfortunately, I was not very lucky in Canada and US, but anyway, Ford won with Jackie. Best regards, Emerson. Aren't they wonderful? Isn't that amazing? To, to, to sit down and write or type that letter. Yes. The, the letters. Yes. I, I can't imagine, maybe I'm wrong, that happening these days, but to, to acknowledge and to thank him. But, and it's interesting, you know, Formula One drivers, the Lotus drivers, had doubts about the cars, but they wanted to win. And, and, I, and I think... I think my father told me once, when he was t- t- talking to Amazon, he said to him, well, yes, you know, I, p- people do worry a bit about Lotus cars, but, but they worry about every car in Formula One. Formula One is, is, is dangerous. Yes. And if you're going to do it, do it in the best car. The next example, and we are getting near the end, um, it's from Max Mosley's autobiography called Formula One and Beyond. And I um, once had the great privilege, after my father had died, of going to the British Grand Prix as a guest of Sid Watkins, who had been very close to my father and had um, done all he could to try and help my father with his illness. And, um, and Sid, Sid Watkins was the Formula One medical he was chief. The, he, was like. the, he was the in charge of all the Formula One medicine, the, yeah. the facilities at the tracks, the liaison with the hospitals. Because it, it was hopeless at the beginning, and he was brought in by uh, Bernie to, yes. to raise the game. Yes, I mean, in the, in, in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, terrible things happened when drivers were injured. Yeah. Um, Famously, when Ronnie Peterson was very badly injured at Monza, the police formed a line, blocked access to him, and Sid Watkins, wasn't, who had been working for Formula One at some time, wasn't allowed to get to him. And, you know, there were ambulances that left the tracks for hospitals, but they didn't know where they were. Mm. There was insufficient um, a- attention to detail, it was, it was a shock preparation, planning. I mean, 
so Sir Watkins, I mean, he just took on everything. He he would supervise the appointments of which, you know, the medical staff in every track, where they were physically at each corner. He would work out the right sort of doctor to have in the right place. He would liaise with the local local um, hospitals. Um, he he single-handedly had the ability to stop a race meeting at any time. Mm. He had that authority. Mm. Um, and, um, and, you know, for example, which they have now, um, you know, if there's low cloud anywhere near the track, the medical helicopters can't fly, then there's no activity on the track. And, and, and Sid told me once that he was complaining to Bernie that they had no medevac helicopters at any of the Formula 1 races and and Bernie said to him, "Oh well, don't worry, Sid. If we need it, you can borrow my helicopter." And Sid <laughs> and Sid said, "Well, I gave Bernie a very graphic description of what could happen if you took an injured driver from a Formula One car and put him in a helicopter. What condition he would be in, what you'd have to do to him." And he said, "Bernie immediately agreed. We we needed dedicated helicopters." Um, anyway. So um, Sid took my son and I's guests, my son Oliver and I's guests, to Silverstone, and we were having um, lunch in, in Bernie Eccleston's motorhome. There were very few people there, and Max mostly walked in and came over and um, introduced himself. So Sid said, this is... Richard and Oliver Hayes, and Max looked at me and said, are you Walter Hayes' son? And I said, yes. And he said, well, your father did me a massive favor in the past and saved me. And um, told me the story, which he then put into, this, into his book. And this is a very... So I have the reference in the book and an email, uh, a, a letter, sent to Ken Tyrrell in 1969 from Max at March, which covers the same thing. And essentially what happened was, if I can just find the right page. Because Max Mosley was, yeah. was one of the founders of, of March, wasn't yes. he? Yes, yes. He, he was the M of March. Yes. So what had happened was they had set up this chassis construction business in Bicester. And um, this is on page 53 of the, and the chapter is the first year of March. It says... Then we had another stroke of luck. Ken Tyrrell had just won the 1969 Formula One World Championship with Jackie Stewart, driving a French Matra with a Cosworth engine. This was known as the Ford Cosworth because, thanks to Walter Hayes, a senior Ford executive, Ford had put up the money for Keith Duckworth to develop it. Um, for 19, Tyrrell had been running a Matra. And for 1970, um, Matra wanted their car to run with their only newly developed V12 engine, but Jackie and Ken trusted the Cosworth. This is going back to the quote from the book. And Jackie and Ken also had a relationship with Ford Motor Company that they were not prepared to break. Um, so anyway, so Matra refused to let Tyrrell run a Matra chassis with a Ford engine. None of the established constructors would sell Tyrrell chassis, so they came to us. Um, and what happened was that they sold... March sold Terrell three chassis, £6,000 each. Okay? The problem was that there wasn't enough money. They hadn't charged enough, and the business was going to go under. And someone told Max Mosley to go and see Walter 
because he could offer some advice. So <laughs> advice again. So Mosley went to see Walter, and he said, um, Walter said, well, the problem simply is, you, as you know, you haven't charged enough money. He said, let's raise the price from 6,000 a chassis to 9,000. Okay? And um, Walter had arranged for Ford to pay for Tyrrell's chassis. And he said, Walter called Robin Hurd to meet his Regent Street office, told us the price was 9,000, not six. I said, we can't possibly do that. We've agreed 6,000 with Tyrrell. His reply was, leave Ken to me. It's 9,000 pounds. <laughs> so the extra money came through. And as Mosley writes here, if Walter had not done that, March would have folded within the year. Incredible. So somebody else, and that was 1970, so 45 years later, Max is writing about it. And this... It's it's beautiful that he remembered that. Yes. And chose to put it in his book. Yes, yes. Walter said to Ken, look, you need a chassis, you know, and these people are very good. And they've made a mistake, you know. So the choice is, um, you know, you stick to the original contract and then you've yes, got... Yes, the, And they're gone. And, and, and Ken was um, pragmatic. He pragmatic. He, he recognised he was getting yes. cheap. And also, as, you know, Ford was helping Lotus and had some sway with Chapman, and Ford was helping yeah. Tyrrell and had sway with Tyrrell. You're listening to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. I thought... We could end with Henry Ford. This was a very, um, very, very important uh, relationship for um, for Walter, for and also for Henry Ford. And it it began in the sixties. Henry Ford became aware of Walter through his part involvement with the GT40 program and mm. the great Ford years they pushed to win Le Mans. And um, then. Ford of Europe began, and Walter was part of that. And Henry Ford, um, in 1970, uh, in particular, was doing, um, looking at expansion, you know, industrial expansion. And uh, he came to he came to London in 1970 uh, to meet Harold Wilson. And this is, is this is actually cutting from the Detroit News. Um, um, I'm just showing you there. It's a, it's a photograph of Walter and Henry Ford leaving 10 Downing Street in 1970. Um, it's attached to a story, actually, from much later saying Hayes returns to Ford as head of Aston Martin. But interestingly, the Detroit News chose to illustrate that with a picture of him and Henry Ford. Him and Henry. And they, they, they also went and had a very interesting time in Russia where they went to meet. They met President Brezhnev and talked about setting up some kind of industrial base there. Um, So what happened was that um, Henry Ford really grew to um, trust and respect Walter's advice to call on it for business, for his speeches, for his presentations. And then it moved over into his personal life. Um, And, for example, every year, the Ford family had a meeting... Um, in Dearborn, where um, Henry Ford would present to the family and to their spouses or partners 
as a courtesy, he would, you know, because they were important stockholders, and he would present to them discussing what was happening and why and the future and the products. And, um, and over time, he decided that it would be good if Walter hosted the meeting. And, uh, and this worked not because Walter was a Ford executive, but because he really knew what he was talking about. Henry would frequently write um, private letters to Walter, um, and there are many. <coughs> it, and up until 1979, they were always signed Henry Ford II, even if they were talking about quite personal things or they were personal, you know, they mm. were friendly. Then uh, in 1980, when uh, Walter and my mother Elizabeth moved to the States, they, became, they, they were just signed with warm regards, best regards, Henry. This is one of the many handwritten letters Henry Ford II sent Walter over the years. In July 1979, he expresses his heartfelt thanks for Walter's advice and counsel, which had made successes of the stockholders and management meetings and the Ford family meeting. Henry greatly appreciated Walter's continuous optimism and refreshing and thoughtful ideas. Uh, two years after Henry died in 1989, uh, Walter retired, and that's when he wrote the biography of Henry, Henry, A Life of Henry Ford II, that was published by Grove Weidenfeld in 1990. And the final item here is a letter from R.J. Miller. Now, R.J. Miller was the president of Ford from 1963 until 1968. Okay. Then he left Ford and he became the dean of the Stanford University Business School. And he made it the great force that it is today. Yes. And um, now the top 10% of the business school graduates are known as R.J. Miller Scholars. Are they really? They are the creme de la creme. And this is the letter that R.J. wrote saying... Dear Walter, this is July the 8th, 1990. First, let me thank you for having your publisher send me a copy of your excellent book on Henry. In my opinion, you have captured the essence of the man far better than anyone else has ever done or ever will do. Best wishes always. We mentioned that uh, after he retired again, mm. after the second of his many retirements, uh, Walter became chairman of the Redundant Churches Fund that he renamed the Churches Conservation Trust. And um, when he died, he was replaced by Liz Forgan. And she wrote, um, this is an extract from what she wrote to the Times, the February 12, 2001, in reply to the obituary that they had published. And she, she writes, Sir, Walter Hayes, obituary February 2, is mourned not only by the motor industry but by a multitude of smaller worlds in which this extraordinary man, bibliophile, historian, and animator of all manner of cultural enterprises played a key part. One of these was the Church's Conservation Trust, of which he was the former chairman. Walter Hayes was the sort of man who would gaze down at the most unpromising fragment of medieval stone and announce, I'll tell you a thing about him, in a voice so full of gossipy promise that he might have been reading from Hello magazine. Of course, he knew his perpendicular from his early English and his ecclesiologists from his Oxford movement, and above all, his Bible, prayer book, 
and church history. But churches to him were preeminent places in which to read the stories of human beings, their triumphs and disasters. He was a wonderful mixture of scholar, bibliophile, journalist, doting grandfather and tycoon, with apparently no disjunction between his different worlds. <clears throat> I, think, I think that is, that is uh, a beautiful summary. Can, can you add a, a personal summary for, from as, as the son? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I mean, I think what, what's interesting is you, you get the feeling that what he achieved couldn't be achieved in the modern world. No. Because the force of his personality and his determination um, and the early success of some significant programs gave him an authority and a credibility um, and, you know, as we know with the Aston Martin DB7, he, he would take the direct route or he would take the countryside route if that's what was necessary. And um, he, ha he lived and worked in particular circumstances, many of which he created. But um, I think now a maverick like this, you know, the mavericks we have now are at the top you know, like the mm. Elon Musks mm. and the mm. Jeffrey Bezoses, those kind of people. But until he was Aston Martin, he never was. Well, the, the newspapers briefly, but he wasn't at the top at Ford. But he persuaded people who were from totally different backgrounds and cultures and took totally different approaches to business and life. He managed to, um, to be persuasive. And, and so it was always a pleasure meeting him and talking to him because he, he wasn't dull at any time about anything. Richard, I must thank you for your time in sharing this information, sharing the stories of, of water. I, feel, I felt when I approached you on this a while back, I, I say it was 24 years uh, since, uh, since the passing of Walter Hayes, and I felt it was time to, to revisit him to tell his story, to remind people who he was, beyond the the, the business side of things, but as, as a person he is. And I want to really thank you very much for that. Um, I also want to thank you very much for continuing to support the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're now a council member, uh, which we look at, that's been relaunched, and we're looking to forward to sharing some more information and hearing some more stories in the future. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Finally, as a footnote, in the last few minutes of the podcast, there is a nice irony in the background noise, as it is the sound of a DB7 arriving at the museum, the car which, of course, Walter Hayes conceived and delivered for Aston Martin. You're listening to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, the cars, the people, the history, with the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're always welcome to visit us at our museum in Oxfordshire. So find out more via amht.org.uk.